Pour yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right on Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. I'm Ebony Lamumba, and Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. Welcome, everyone. We're so glad you could join us today for this exciting conversation between John Marslack III and Robert Fiesler, or Bobby. They're going to be talking about John's first and new book coming out of the Magnolia Closet, Same-Sex Couples in Mississippi. John is a national certified counselor and licensed professional counselor in Mississippi. He has been a counselor educator for 20 years. He received his PhD in counselor education at Mississippi State University. John's research has been published in chapters of edited books and professional counseling journals. Coming out of the Magnolia Closet is his first book. Before moving back to Mississippi, where we're so glad to have him, John lived in Buffalo, New York, Washington, D.C., Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and New Orleans, Louisiana. John lives with his husband, Larry, and two dogs in Starkville, Mississippi. Robert, or Bobby, as he prefers to be called, Fiesler, um, his first book is Tinderbox, The Untold Story of the Upstairs Lounge Fire and the Rise of Gay Liberation, was published by Live Right, an imprint of W.W. Norton. He was also featured on the first LGBTQ panel of the Mississippi Book Festival in 2019. Mm -hmm. Tinderbox won the Edgar Award for the Best Fact Crime, Louisiana Literary Award, and the Lambda Literary's Judith A. Markowitz Award for Emerging Mm -hmm. LGBTQ Writers. Bobby is the recipient of the Pulitzer Traveling Fellowship and the Linton Fellowship in Book Writing. He's a writer for BuzzFeed, Narratively and Elsewhere. Bobby lives with his husband, Ryan, in New Orleans. Also, I should definitely mention, John's book is published by the Incredible University of Mississippi Press, who we are, who the book festival is great friends with, and we are so thrilled to be partnering with them on this great event. So I'm going to hand it off to you guys, and y'all just take it away. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Thank you to the Mississippi Book Festival for, for hosting this dialogue, and thank you so much, John for writing this wonderful book, Coming Out of the Magnolia Closet, Same-Sex Couples in Mississippi. I, it was such a trip for me to read this. There's so many beautiful oral history interviews of queer individuals unfolding and explaining and delving into their lives in Mississippi. I, at various different times, was just, you know, I was completely admiring of their um, incredible resilience, great sense of humor. And there were moments, too, when I was a bit frustrated for them and heartbroken, right? When you see the degree, the effort and the degree to which these individuals make shift to live, right? Without undue strain in a society that sometimes would have them otherwise. And that's the heartbreaking part, right? But we all are from where we are. and, And a lot of us, most of us love our home. That's part of our identity. So of course, I was that's right. I couldn't help but note how you wove the strength of those ties in the book. And so I, I, I you know, when I read an oral history, a, a book that's a lot, you know, a series of oral history interviews, I didn't expect to be moved the way I was emotionally, but I was incredibly moved throughout this book. So I, I just want to thank you so much for writing it and to offer congratulations, obviously, for you publishing it and putting it out in the world. Yeah, yeah it's, just, it's an honor to be talking to you because as I've said, I've read your book and um, I just such an admirer of you as an author. So this is- Oh, an thank you. Yeah. Oh, all right, well, today's to celebrate you though. So I'm gonna dive into questions <laughs> and then we're just gonna, we're just gonna gab like girls. Um, so like, 
Why did you feel that this book coming out of the Magnolia Closet was important to write now? That's a good question. Well, I, when I first started writing it, I have to be honest, it was for personal reasons. Mm -hmm. um, and as I, I said, say in the book, I was so torn when I left New Orleans and moved here. I didn't know if I wanted to stay. I had the conflict of being back where my roots are, but missing that feeling, like we've been talking about earlier, about the eccentricity in New Orleans. You, you can be whoever you want to be and people don't care. And it's just awesome. Care. But in these small town Southern communities, you, there's this feeling that, um, or this pressure that everybody fits in, that they meet this certain mold. Mm. You know, I'm back here thinking if I'm going to stay and I meet my husband and his job is here. And it's kind of like, okay, what am I going to do? I basically going to stay here for a while, see what happens. And I just, I had such a conflict and I started writing about that. And then I decided that um, I really wanted to meet other couples. We'd started meeting some couples, but I wanted to meet couples around the state and see hear what their experiences were. And the more I hear, heard about their experiences, I just wanted to tell their stories. It became this thing where I just wanted to let other people know that there are gay couples here, that contrary to what the politicians here think, these are people who really love the state, they love their communities, they wanna make it a better place. And I just, their stories are so moving, as you said, and just so important, I just felt like they needed to be told. Mm -hmm. It all came about. Yeah. Now you made the choice too to, in addition, in this grand history of, of like an oral history study where you interview a lot of other couples, you made the choice too to include a lot of your story. And I wanted to mm -hmm. kind of understand why you felt that it was important to include your story too, side by side, these other individuals you were interviewing. Yeah. You know, I think it's, um, I think it had a lot to do with my counseling background. Um, obviously, as when, I, when I'm working with clients, I don't tell my story to the clients, but there's such an importance about the relationship between you and the client when you're working with somebody mm. that brought that into my experience with the couples. And I felt like it was important to share my story with them, but also bring it into the book so that people could see how, how my own story may have impacted the way I asked the questions, the way I framed things in the book. And just to also show that not only am I the author, but I'm also someone who's part of this whole um, experience living here in Mississippi. Yeah, you're legit. Um, yeah. <laughs> legit, that's right. That's right. <laughs> can, you, can you delve into a little bit of your Mississippi background? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we, um, I mean, how far do you want to go back? <laughs> well, I mean, you were born in Mississippi, I presume? And no, no, actually, my parents are from the north. My, my father moved us here when I was in second grade. Mm -hmm. um, he was a professor of history at Mississippi State University. And, um, you know, over the years, he moved up to full professor and has done very well for himself. He's written a lot of books himself. And um, we ended up staying and it became home, you know, over time. Mm. When, when I went to college, I went away to college because I was already living in this college town. So my parents thought it was good, a good idea for me to go away and experience different cultures. And I thought yeah. it was too. And so that, that's what happened. And of course, I come back to visit over the years. Um, but then besides coming back for graduate school, I really didn't think I'd end up back here. Um, so I guess when, we, when I was a kid living here, it was always, it always felt like I had one foot in and one foot out because, you know, I, it's what I knew starting with the second grade. Mm -hmm. As I say in the book, I had this ethnic last name. Um, you know, we, we were very heavily involved in the Catholic church and this really bastion of Protestant religions. Mm -hmm. um, and we didn't really have roots here. But over the years, um, between my brothers and myself and my parents, you know, when you've been here since 73, at some point, the roots start to take hold and you right. really, it feel it's home, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Wow. And then you moved back after Katrina. Um, you were a Katrina refugee that moved back to Mississippi um, after having a life in New Orleans. Um, and when you came back to Mississippi, um, did, you, did that rake up a lot of feelings for you of the question of being and belonging and your roots and all of that? Yeah, at first, I didn't think I was going to be here long. I, I still remember, um, you know, coming back, I thought I'd be here for, there was a football game at Mississippi State, a big football game. I, I thought, well, it'll be like another football weekend. I'll come and visit. And, <laughs> and then I'm, I don't remember what day it was, but I'm watching CNN in my parents' house. And, you know, the, literally had the TV on when the news flash came on that said that the, um, the flooding had started. Mm. And, oh, my gosh. And I actually saw, it was the strangest thing. They're showing the areas of the city, and I actually saw the National Guard standing on the corner there in Elys on Elysian Fields in front of my house. I could see my house off to the side. It was oh my gosh, parks on the house and all that, like they did. Um, so at that point, I realized I'm going to be here for a while, and um, still didn't think it'd be long term. I thought eventually I'll, I'll be going back, mm -hmm. and what turned into a little bit of time ended up turning into a year. Um, and then I met Larry, my husband, and the next thing you know, I'm making a life here. Yeah, that's so, beautiful. Then, that's yeah, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's get into a little bit of the, the, the oral history interviews you were having, okay. individuals you met. What, um, what were some of the most meaningful conversations for you in terms of the people you were meeting? And, and sort of what did you take away from these conversations? Gosh, there's so many... It's, it's almost hard to pick them because there's so many good ones. So I'm just going to go with what pops into my head, which is what sure. I always my clients. Um, there's a, there was a um, young African-American couple that I met, and they had so much energy and so much love that I was so moved by their stories. Um, in the book, they're the couple who describe that um, when they got married, one of them lost their jobs. Mm -hmm. um, but when they came, they did not want me to interview them. They were one of the few couples that didn't want me to come to their house to interview them because they had children. And they didn't, they didn't want the children to hear what they were talking about. Sometimes talking about their families or talking about some of the struggles they've been in. Um, and when they came in, Larry answered the door. And they were so excited when they saw Larry there. They, they assumed I was gay, but they weren't sure. Mm -hmm. So they, I think we must have spent the first 15, 20 minutes with me answering questions about what is it like to be a same-sex couple? Because they, they'd met some other same-sex couples, but they were kind of isolated in mm -hmm. their own little area. Um, and, you know, they mainly had been with their families. So they, they, were just, they were just craving connections with other gays and lesbians. And I think one of the things that I, I'd already known about Mississippi, but really just um, hurt my heart, it sounds kind of funny, but I guess it's kind of what it felt like, that they described the segregation that they'd experienced in the gay community here. Mm -hmm. they, they, they said whenever they did go to parties or events and they were with, for, with other people that were gay, they were almost always all black people. Mm -hmm. I had experienced something similar in going to events um, back when I was living in Columbus, that it was, it was such a segregated, it was a, such a segregated society to this, to this day. Now, mm -hmm. The college towns because you have professors and you have students um, who come to the different events that go on but it's still it's just it's such a reflection of society as a whole that there's so much segregation that still occurs and I, I really hated that. Was that what like surprised or shocked you the most the degree to which um, racial factors um, 
play a part um, in gay life in various rural subcultures, or was there something else that surprised you more than that? No, I guess I assumed, I guess I assumed it would be there. I didn't really thought about it until I went into it. Um, I think that, I mean, I had seen the same thing living in cities, that there's such a segregation between the races. It's better, it's better. But, you know, you go into gay bars, like when I was living in New Orleans and going to the pub, for instance, mm -hmm. there on Bourbon Street. Oh, yeah. You see a little bit of diversity, but mainly you see mostly men, a few women coming in. There's such a segregation between men and women also a lot of times. Absolutely. So I guess the other side of it that's positive is in, in these rural areas when there is a bar that opens up, which is rare, or when someone throws a party, what will happen is there'll be a lot more segregation between the, between the genders, mm -hmm. between um, sexual between transgender people and the few that are here and um, gays and lesbians and bisexual people. And then, you know, I think you more and more see a sprinkling of um, different races, but I think it still has a long way to go. Mm. Well, even even a place like New Orleans or, or, or frankly, many gay bars in many cities I go to have a long way to go in terms of this factor. It's true. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think about how um, in New Orleans, the gay Mardi Gras crews are considered such uh, an, an elite oh, and important yeah. part of, uh, of New Orleans gay society. Uh, yeah, to be yeah. or queen of one of the crews, like you can't put that on a resume, but people just like, no. they, they fight over <laughs> Literally, friendships are made and lost over who's queen of Mardi Gras. If you're part that's of that's right. That's right. That's funny. And um, and some of these crews weren't um integrated racially um until the mid '80s. Um, yeah. and there's still only one black gay Mardi Gras crew, the crew of Mawindo. Um, oh, wow. which has a sort of almost a you know they they try to tiptoe around it, but in and among the way the crews associate with each other, still has a kind of um odd relationship with the rest of the crews. So I think, I think there's still a lot of work, really, and a lot of soul searching to be done um, in general in terms of racial issues and queer culture. Um, I think so too. I think, yeah, I, yeah, I think so. Um, so I was really struck when I was reading the book about, and this is a notion that weaves through the entire um, story, but this, this notion of the idea of the social compact, right, um, because right. we return to it again and again. Um, and I was wondering if you could unpack or if you wanted to read a section about this to kind of explain the notion, but unpack this theory of the social compact for listeners, which had a lot to do with this sort of agreed upon silence and sort of detente, like a peace between yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. hidden, almost semi-hidden queer residents who weren't going anywhere and people with anti-queer attitudes who were their neighbors or, you know, or fellow parishioners who weren't going anywhere either. Yeah, yeah. I guess what's really interesting, I guess going back a little bit, is that um, as I was doing the research for this book, of course I read John Howard's book, Men Like That, which is like a classic book of, um, of same-sex, he really wrote it about men who might identify as homosexual in those days. Mm -hmm. Or did not identify, but had same-sex desires, and it's a classic book. He describes a history in Mississippi of men who um, had same-sex desires, men who had sex with men, going back, I believe it's the '40s to the '80s. Mm -hmm. One of the things he talked about, which was just fascinating to me, was that in most areas of the country, you know, of course, it was not okay to be gay or lesbian, what we say in today's world, but people really didn't really start making such a big deal about it until the McCarthy years when they started tying um, mm -hmm. homosexuality to communism. Mm -hmm. 
interesting is he said in Mississippi, which oftentimes it happens, we were, we, we did not, um, the state didn't really take on that same attitude until the 60s during the, um, during the um, civil rights march, marches. The people started connecting homosexuality with the civil rights workers who were coming down. Mm-hmm. And that's when they started cracking down on men, men who had same-sex desires. And this, this tolerance that was there, that people kind of turned a blind eye to, um, it, it really changed at that point. And so mm-hmm. he, he's the one who talked about the social compact in which before this period of the civil rights movement in Mississippi, that people knew that people had same-sex desires, that they just pretty much just chose to ignore it. Even the churches, you know, they might say that homosexuality is, homosexuality is sinful, but it wasn't this thing that they were just going crazy about all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, like we, we experience today in a lot of these really conservative churches. So as I'm interviewing my couples, um, I was thinking about what Howard had said, and I'd also done research before on sexual orientation identity development and looking at how people come out, the process of um, realizing that you might be gay and then realizing that you're gay. And for some people, if they haven't had that family support, coming to this level of tolerance where like, they're like, okay, I'm gay, but this is not a good thing. I'm not happy with it. Mm-hmm. Level of acceptance where they're like, this is awesome. You know, I want to be in the, I want to go to the gay bars and be in the pride parades and, you know, have a relationship. Yep. So putting Howard stuff together with the research I had done, I realized that there's this tolerance and acceptance going on in these small town communities, that there's this, things are changing in Mississippi, believe it or not, just like they are every place, it changes slower. But what you see is that you see in these communities, these couples who everyone knows are gay or lesbian, and they tolerate that they're there, but it's not an acceptance. They don't, they don't talk about it. They don't, they don't acknowledge that they're a couple. It's just, um, you know, there's Sue and Wendy living in a house down the street. Aren't they a sweet, aren't they a sweet, you know, two sweet friends or something like that. <laughs> um, couples talking about um, in their families where um, family members knew they were together, invited them to family events, but never acknowledged that they were actually in a relationship together. Mm-hmm. And so the social compact of silence was that, um, and I, I wrote this out in the book, it's this idea that we will, we will tolerate you as long as you don't put it in our face too much, as long as you don't make us talk about your relationship, as long as you don't make us think about that you um, are intimate with each other, that you have sex together, anything that goes outside this place is not acceptable. But So we'll tolerate you. And then the couples, for their parts, in these smaller towns are expected to, as many of the couples said, not push it in people's faces. Not, several couples said, we don't wave the, we don't, um, wave the rainbow flag. Right. Um, or they said different stuff, like, you know, they don't have, uh, they don't, you know, they don't have glitter coming out of their butts or something yes, like that. that one, yeah. it. Yes, and I, the one I liked was where one couple said, you know, we don't, we, we're not, we're not the kind of couples that wear thongs walking down the street like you see in the big cities. <laughs> <laughs> right, which is the, the notion of their, you know, uh, their, uh, their, making shift to sort of uh, pass or assimilate into norms of the community. Right, exactly. And it's like, they're, it's like people trying to have this balance between their identities as family members and community members, and many of them church members, but also trying to be true to themselves as gays and lesbians. And it's, mm-hmm. it's trying to find this balance here that, that um, is difficult, you know, I think. Right. Um, and then uh, 
did you have an excerpt you wanted to read or there was a section I recalled too um, that I found very moving when we were, they were talking about the social compact. Right, right. I, this, gosh, I can read the one I picked out or I can read one that you wanted. Either one, it's fine. No, you go, read the one you picked out. <laughs> the reason I picked this one is because it's such an example of what um, I would hear over and over again from couples. So it, it just struck me, it's just, it was a perfect example of the social compact, both between the community and the couple, and also um, also an example that although there's tolerance, it doesn't mean that behind the scenes people are necessarily being accepting. Mm -hmm. um, so this is from the chapter on community. Sam and Marty were born in and have always lived in Mississippi. In their late 50s, they have been together over half their lives, 30 years. Sam and Marty live in a place they described as, quote, the middle of nowhere. To get to their house, I exit off the highway onto a narrow two-lane road that leads into a small town of around 4,000 people. Although I had driven the highway many times over the years on the way to the coast, I had never strayed further from, from it than stopping at a gas station within sight of the exit. With the bustle of the highway and the liveliness of the coast, it's easy to forget that there are quaint little communities along the way unless you actually drive beyond the fast food restaurants and gas stations adorning the highway like tacky jewelry on a long, lanky body. I drove over a small hill just beyond the exit, and it's almost like the highway doesn't exist. I continued through countryside past an occasional trailer before a green marker at the top of the hill welcomes me to the small town. Sam and Marty actually live in an unincorporated community a few miles from the town a cluster of houses around a four-way stop in the road that leads into downtown. Marty and Sam offer an example of the social compact of silence in their community. They feel uncomfortable with being too, quote, out there, and they describe a fake acceptance in which tolerance means accepting you to your face but rejecting you behind your back. In what ways would you say you perceive support for your relationship in the community, I asked them. We've been together so long, Marty responds, that even straight people who normally might find it bothersome, well, we didn't flaunt it, and I think they thought, oh, well, they may be gay, but at least they're making the house look better than it did, and so <laughs> more leeway. I think maybe it educated some people along the way that say, well, they're not really flamboyant. They say to themselves pretty much, they work on the house, and maybe they're not as bad as they're portrayed all the time. We don't have the flag outside, you know. Sam says, referring to a rainbow flag. I mean, we have all different types of friends. We have every economic group, every political group. It just really doesn't matter. What we do in the bedroom or what we do in this house is nobody's business. I'm sure there's some people that smile in our face, but probably talk about us behind our back. But at my age, I could care less. I mean, even if they do at this point, you reach a point in your life where we don't have to be worried about if we're gonna lose our jobs, or be comfortable enough financially. It's like, okay, if you don't like me, it's not the end of the world. We do know some people that will, you know, smile in our face, and we do know that they talk about us, but I could care less, Sam says, echoing Marty. How do you know, I ask? Because it comes back to us, Sam responds, especially if you're in a small community, Marty adds. Mm. So I thought that was just such a, you know, poignant example that, that what the balance is going on 
Oh, sure. And it's, it's complex, right? It's almost yeah. like a Versailles of nice and politeness and meanness that they're yeah. balancing. Yeah, yeah. Very community interactions. It's, yeah. You know, I, I, there's a place in the book that I, I still crack up when I think about it, but talking about this whole idea of Southern politeness is a stereotype. <laughs> it's almost passive aggressiveness, you know? Yeah. There's I just, it, <laughs> there, I found this, um, I found this interview where Ellen DeGeneres is being interviewed by one of the talk show hosts. Right. He's asking her what, um, you know, bless your heart means. Right, which I didn't know. Yeah, I, yeah. And, he, and she, he goes, he goes, Ellen, I was trying to park my car in this parking garage in some city in the South, and I was having just a hell of a time, and, you know, backing in, going in and out. I was just couldn't get the car in, and so I finally get it, get it in there, get out, and the, this lady says to me, bless your heart, honey, you really were having a hard time. And he said, Ellen, what does this mean, bless your heart? And Ellen goes, she was basically saying to you that you store, you stupid poor fool didn't know what you were doing. <laughs> right way, you know? So I thought that, that to me, it was just hilarious because it kind of described what this couple was saying. Right. Um, how did you go about finding these couples? Um, I, there's a gay happy hour, several gay happy hours in these small um, towns. Right. And, People come from all over. So I started with, I started with that. Mm -hmm. And through people I met there, um, got referrals from them. I posted stuff. There was a group at the time called Unity Mississippi. That mm -hmm. had a website. I went through them. I went through Facebook. I just, you know, just, just kept trying. It's called a snowball approach. Just kept going everywhere I could. Right. To gather people. And then when I meet couples, they'd say, have you, you know that couple down in so and down in such and such a town? You really should talk to them. Mm -hmm. Go from there. Right. And would you have to convince them to interview or because I, you know, I, I'm a journalist, so I interview people all the time, but I never pause to think about why do people talk to me? Like, it's just, a, it's the funniest thing. But I mean, did, would there be a, a sort of dance or, or did some people right away um, want to talk to you when they found out about the project? Yeah, some people when they heard about the project wanted to talk to me and they called, they, they contact me, they'd hear it from somebody and they were excited about it. And I, I'd interview them and I could tell they were so excited to have the opportunity to tell their stories. Mm -hmm. But then there were other couples that I would get re referrals fr from other couples or um, they might contact me tentatively and they were really nervous. And I'd have to answer a lot of questions like, you know, what am I going to, and I told people this anyway, but what, am, what are you going to do to protect our, our identities? Sure. You know, several, several, I mean, several of the couples had to be careful that anyone at their job didn't find out because they were worried about their jobs. Um, and there are, there's, there are several couples who re refused to let me do the interview because they were still so concerned. They had high positions in their towns, for instance, and they just were so concerned that if they just, they just couldn't trust that somehow somebody wouldn't find out. Right. And can you talk a little bit about like the, your decisions or, or your process of, you know, changing names or identities or softening locations of interviewees to protect this idea of the social compact. I was curious about that when I was reading this, like, was this the request of your sources or part of your own research methodology or was it because you're, you get Mississippi now, was this an act of mercy that came from your understanding of the culture? You mean that whole act of changing the names and- Correct. You know, yeah. yeah. Well, when I, you know, the research I've always, the research I'd done in the past was, this was, this was a new type of research for me. I definitely interviewed people, but um, never had done what I would say would be an oral history. And so 
in at the university, you, you have to go through this whole process of having your research approved. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I had to, I had to prove was that I was going to make sure that couples um, could not be identified by anyone who read mm -hmm. research. And when I went through this process, I did not have any idea I was going to write a book. I thought this would be a really interesting study to do. I'm going to do some articles, maybe some presentations at a conference. And then as I got into it, I interviewed more and more people. Mm -hmm. and I realized, so both because of the research procedures I had to follow, but also because the more I talked to couples who are living in these towns, you know, I'm kind of privileged because I live in a college town and it's much, it's almost like living in a little bubble. And yeah. I still have some of the same stuff, but it's, it's much different. But, you know, these are couples who are living in these small towns like Marty and Sam living in a, near a town of 4,000 people. Mm. have so much to lose. Even if people assume that they're gay, if people found out just things that they were saying or really just being out there, who knows how it could affect them. Mm -hmm. so I just, it just felt like the moral thing for me to do, the ethical thing. Sure. And so I would just, I would, I would ask every couple, you know, is there a name you'd like me to choose for you? And every couple said, no, just choose what, you know, just come up with something that's not going to mm -hmm. be, not going to sound too silly. And then I would intentionally, I was true to the size of the towns and the, the landscape I saw and things like that. But I, I would be sure to identify, to, I was very careful that I didn't identify exactly where it was. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. interesting that um, you would need to engage that level of protection in order to ensure too that um, these stories could be shared because they are valuable. This as data, this is just interesting and important things to know. But I, I keep thinking about like if there aren't projects like your book, then these stories just are never recorded anywhere. No, that's right. That's and I thought about that too. That yeah, it it's just the whole the whole period just kind of gets washed away. Yeah, but there was one couple that you had actually asked me about before we started this interview. The, the um the couple in the religion chapter, yeah, uh, who who formed their own formed um the met, the pastor formed their own church, and that's the only couple that actually requested that I not change their names mm -hmm. um, because they really um they've talked about their story um to other people. I believe it's in a, it's in a documentary someplace and they are just so committed to making a difference. And they're in a college town. They right. say, you know, don't change our names. We want people to know who we are. So. Mm -hmm. yeah. I was struck by the way that the social compact also applies to fam some of the families of the individuals you were interviewing. There was specifically, and I'm, you know, some of the stuff like struck very close to home to me because it's a sort of careful dance they have to play with individuals so, so as to maintain their membership within a family unit. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm a gunkle, like, you know what I mean? I'm a gay uncle and I'm very That's proud like, of yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I have um, four nieces under the age of three years old, pray for me. But I, you know, they're, they're such a part of my life. And I, I read, I remember reading this one portion, there's a chapter that really moved me it was in, within the family section yeah couple, drew and neil were talking about that if they came out to her yeah. sister how she was married to a presbyterian minister who um would likely take their nephews um away from them and not permit them to be seen i i was quite moved by the section where um drew and neil were talking about if they came out to uh, their sister, that the brother-in-law, uh, there might be um, consequences involving the brother-in-law preventing uh, this, this gay couple from being around the nephews, which I just was like, oh my God. Like, cause if you can yeah. take my nieces away from me, I would just die. 
Um, but there was something that I thought that they said involving the social compact within family life, which is how deep it went, talking mm -hmm. about how Drew and Neil, would, they would go to family dinners. And the quote that they had was, you know, all these years you'd go over, over to the house for, you know, lunches in. It's always been, this is Drew's friend, Neil, or Drew's yeah. roommate, Neil. Drew says, anticipating my question. It's amazing what people can, the delusion, Neil adds. And then the next, the denial, the delusion people can live with when they want to. Drew finishes, don't ask, don't tell, I say, that's you. And that's then me. that's how it was, Drew agrees. The idea that so long as something is not overtly brought up or challenged, that there's a sort of um, fragile peace that can be maintained within communities, within families, etc. Um, and how a lot hinges on this, so much so that you would have to protect these identities or say, like, you, you wouldn't even, I've noticed in the book sometimes you don't even name that they're close to a river, but sometimes you don't name the river and sometimes yeah, you do. Yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I just, I, I, I was really, I, you know, I was really affected by that section emotionally. And I was wondering how, what, I know that you have a background as a, as a mental health counselor, but how do you get these individuals to unburden themselves in the way that they do to you in these interviews? That's a good question. I, I think I say in the book, and I've, I've said this before, that I think a big part of it was, was that I'm gay. Uh, and they knew that they know I'm in a relationship myself. Mm -hmm. I think the other part was also that most people knew, knew that I'm a counselor and you know, it's just kind of, I don't even, it's, I've, I've, I guess I'm trained to not necessarily interview people, but be able to talk to people in, a, in an intimate setting like that. Um, and so I think that they felt comfortable with me for those two reasons. Mm -hmm. And I think um, also, I think I said this earlier today that I think they were just really wanting to tell their stories as someone that could understand. Um, mm -hmm and that they could be heard, that that was really important to a lot of the couples. And, yeah. Um, yeah, and that's one of the stories that really, that I found heartbreaking too, you know. But then there's another story, which is interesting, where um, the African-American couple I mentioned earlier talks about how they told their mother to protect their children. On the other hand, they told their mother that if you're not going to um, be accepting of us, if you're not going to say good things about us, you're not going to be around your grandchildren. Right. That, that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. I see, and it, this was, I'm coming at this from an interesting angle because I wrote a story about the semi-closeted underworld of the 1970s New Orleans where I wish I'd had the term social compact. Oh, I was going to see that. Yeah. There was, a, there was a fragile, well, what was interpreted to be a fragile piece. And I see a lot of similarities between contemporary Mississippians believing that they're safe within today's social compact and some of the upstairs lounge victims and survivors who believe themselves safe in a semi-secret society of, in New Orleans in the 1970s, right? Until someone yeah. with a match and created an emergency. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to ask you, because um, this, this kept coming up as I was reading this, clearly for, for many of your couples, right? The social compact, these, these unspoken agreements function to provide safety or the appearance of it in ordinary situations. Um, from your perspective, what about ordinary, out of ordinary situations or emergencies? 
Like if, if one of your couples or one of the interviewees was the victim of say a violent crime that exposed their sexuality in the process, do you feel that these communities, would that break, would that violate, the, the publicity violate the social compact? Like do you feel that communities would rally to support these individuals to the same degree as a quote unquote straight victim? You know, I really don't know. That's a good question. I think that so much of it would have to do, unfortunately, and maybe I'm just giving a hypothesis here because I'm not yeah. a question. But sure. many of these couples, not all of them, but many of the couples have privilege in terms of being um, white men who, um, if they're not necessarily wealthy, but they're middle class mm -hmm. and they're one of the communities, many of them have connections with families going way back. Mm -hmm. Not all of them, but some do. And there's a certain privilege in that, in that people, like you could see people um, coming to help them and take care of them, mm. even they might still not acknowledge the reason that they have been hurt. Mm. Yeah. Because of family tie and family reputation. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm, that's interesting. There's a, there was a case, um, you know, there, in the past several years, there was a case where there were four transgender women in different areas of the state that were murdered and the state legislature could not, some, someone, they tried to get a bill, someone tried to get a bill going where they'd have hate crimes legislation based mm -hmm. on gender identity and sexual orientation in the state, mm -hmm. and you know, didn't even make it out of committee um, in the state legislature. Um, and, and you know, the, and the, for someone who's transgender and oftentimes black, there's the lack of privilege, you can see how it affects, affects people's rights, you know? Mm -hmm. But, you know, and, I, and I, I guess I want to say also that when I say there's a social compact of change, of si excuse me, a social compact of silence, there really is in these really small towns. But I, I guess I should also say that there's still those outline areas. There's, the, there's, the, you know, the, there's a couple that talks about um, being harassed and having things thrown at their house. Um, and then there's, um, but then there are couples who talk about this amazing support. You know, and there have been gay pride parades more in Starkville and um, Oxford and in Jackson. Mm -hmm. So there are things happening and you, you see, you hear a lot of, you hear, do hear stories of support also, but it's just that this is something I just kept hearing over and over and over again. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, and it's also the, the number of years that couples were in a relationship. I think that plays a function too, because... I have a wide range of ages of people I interviewed, but the fact that they were in relationships for at least five years means that, um, especially for the older ones, this is something that they've been dealing with for a long time. Yeah. So I've noticed um, in the book too, there was, um, there was a real emphasis with many of the couples to emphasize that they were boring or that they were virtually I know, normal. I know, I know, yeah. Great couples who were swingers had wilder lives than they did. There was one couple named Jerry and Carl, they got ma married in Vermont, and they talk about, this is Carl talking, quote, we live a normal life. We don't have sex swinging from the chandeliers like people think. I um, and I was wondering, that. to what extent do you think the idea of, um, what role did sex negativity or respectability politics play into your interviewees, generally not wanting to be perceived as, um, as a sexual uh, as oversexed individuals. Um, a lot of them seemed quite muted. I think so. And I, in the last chapter, I kind of raised that question. I, I raised the question of the, that looking back, I realized there were silences in the book itself. 
things we didn't talk about, and sex was one of them. There were a couple. There were a couple couples. That sounds funny. That did talk about, um, you know, did talk about sex and talked about um, not only their sexual history, but also um, couples that were. It was very rare with these couples, but couples that were like in an open relationship. But like you said, most couples wanted to present themselves as being um, just like everybody else. Um, you know, and I don't know if I'm making a, a reach here. But it, it, it almost is like the, um, what you hear about the, some of the activists who in the gay, in the LGBTQ community, who didn't like the idea of um, focusing on marriage rights because they felt like it was, it was trying to make everyone seem too straight, too heterosexual. Oh, sure. Makes a lot of sense. But then on the other hand, you have these people saying, but we just want to be part of society. We just want to fit in. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like that conflict there. And for these couples, it was like trying, they, they wanted to show their communities and the people that we're just like you are, we're not any different, but in the, we, we, can, we can fit in here. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't, but it kind of brushes over the fact that well, we really are different, you know? Right. And we, um, do sex, and we do have sex with each other and, you know, we were intimate with each other and nobody wants to talk about that. But if you're in a relationship with someone, I mean, obviously something's going on, so. Well, and, that, and that's a vital part of being in a relationship. But well, that's right. Together. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Too. yeah. So it's interesting. But I'm sure, you know, if holding hands while walking down the street's a big deal, the notion of what goes on in the boudoir is probably... That's right. Yeah. That's right. The same couple, Jerry and Carl... Um, talk a little bit about, um, they introduced this word that I'd never heard in a positive context, but they said, um, I mean, this is what um, I believe Carl's saying. I mean, we're just tolerable and that's how we want to be treated. The idea of toler being tolerable or capable of being tolerated as a positive thing I'd never considered. Um, yeah, yeah. And I, I was wondering if you could, um, uh, unpack that a little bit because I heard the term tolerable and I'd never heard of it stated like that someone wants to be that. Um, no, I, no, I hadn't either. But, um, but you know, if, where my mind goes with this is that, um, and again, I'm making stereotypes, so um, they're always outliers, but sure. in, it seems to me that in Southern culture, there's a lot of pressure for people to um, conform and be a certain way. Mm -hmm. and people don't, often talk about things that might be seen as um, disrespectful or outside the, outside the norm. And you see communities all the time. Um, and I wonder how, to what extent that also affects couples like Jerry and Carl. Not only are they doing this social compact to silence, but they're also, they're also kind of explaining that whole Southern culture. Because you hear, you do hear um, gays and lesbians down here oftentimes talk about um, how they don't, they just feel so different than the gays and lesbians living in the cities because um, they feel like they're too out there, they're too political, they're too this, sure. they're too that. And so it's, I guess it's an example of how culture, how these, how the Southern culture affects not only straight people, but obviously gay people too. And I guess it can't help but affect you if you're, you're living here. I mean, yeah. from your perspective, to what extent does, you know, being a tolerable queer permit like the anti-queer opposition to have a louder voice 
or, or in, in society. Or I keep thinking about, you know, by, by being able to claim, you know, there are, there are no queers in Mississippi because one hardly ever meets them openly. That's right. That's right. That's right. But, you know, even if, even if people are open, um, you still, there's still that feeling that it's okay. You know how it is when people say, you know, people say, you'll hear white people say, for instance, oh, you're, you know, this is awful. You know, someone will say, well, um, you're not like the other black people I know. You know, that kind of thing. I think that we get the same things a lot of time. You know, I, I've had people, several couples told me this, and I've had this said to Larry and me, well, you know, you're not like, you're not really like the gay people that we, we thought, you know, gay people would be like. Um, you know, you're just, you know, and because I don't know what the expectation is, but it's like the stereotype on TV. Right. They're convinced every single person is going to be exactly like that. Are you complimented uh, or insulted? I don't, find it, I don't find it a compliment at all. I find it annoying, but you They're know. They're confiding in you, though, that they had a presumption and that you're, not, you're fulfilling the presumption, so they trust you in that moment. Well, I think, you know, there's part, I think it's also that, you, you know, it's a whole thing. If you get to know somebody and you get to know them, you start, you, a lot of your prejudices go away, at least with that person, but then the prejudices are still there you know, outside that person. Right. Oh, the things straight say. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> so um, why do you think that these wonderful couples um, have not, they, they, they in, in most every case, they really have not given up on communities that seem to ask so much of them in these detentes, like just, just because they display this innate characteristic, they seem mm -hmm. to have to walk this very careful line. Um, yeah. Some cases very successful, but they, they have not, they, they seem to in many ways be, you know, elected to positions, to be volunteers, they work, they're part of the communities that they live in. Um, why do you think that they take that kind of pride um, in, being, in being part of that? Um. Because they do feel part of the communities, you know, it's it's part of it's part of who they are. It's part of their identities, being a community member, just as a, just as being gay is part of their part of their identities. And um, for some people, it may be all they know. Uh, I remember one one um, one lesbian couple said that um, I thought this was really great insight on their part. They said, you know, we really didn't even know what was out there until we traveled for the first time, and you know, oh. it, you know, and it's like that's what you know. That and then and it. You can go to, um, you can go to, I'm speaking not as me, but as you, someone can go to a big city and all they've ever known is a small town and they just feel, it just feels so foreign to them. Mm. So there's you, you bring up urban bias too, where I think about, and this is not just straights, this is, or gays, this is everyone, but like, yeah. I keep thinking about how peace, oh, my father-in-law, for example, who I have a very tight relationship with is anti-city. Uh, oh, they, yeah, yeah. They live close to land between the lakes, rural Kentucky that they moved to and retired to intentionally because that's the only place that he finds peace is he likes the countryside and he likes the subtle beauty of all the seasons. And I keep thinking about how our, in our, our world that has an urban bias, especially in relation to queer life, one presumes that the queer person flees the small town for the city and likes the city. That's right. That's right. That's right. But it's, it's not always the case. That's not always, you know, and I, you know, I talk about in the beginning of the book, how when I was leaving New Orleans, I had an, I had a, um, I had the opposite. I had a small town bias because I was so, 
upset about what happened with Katrina. And I was just, I was, you know, I was looking, everything with New Orleans was negative to me at that point. Oh, sure. And I just wanted, I just wanted some peace. I just wanted to get out from it all. And then, you know, as I stepped back and looked at this, I realized that I had a rural, I had a small town bias for a while. They're just like the gays in the big cities have, uh, um, what some people call metronormativity, this expectation, all gay people want to be in the cities and, you know, that's where they belong and all this kind of stuff. Right. So. No, it's, it's quite interesting. It's fascinating. Um, yeah. Given the Bostock uh, Supreme Court decisions extension to extend, uh, you know, the, the Civil Rights Act to queer folk, to um, both gays and lesbians, trans folk, etc. Um, what is the current status of employment and public accommodations law, right, in the state that also has that, um, the famous law that respects religious-based discrimination? You know, I really wonder about that. That's a good question. And um, I guess, like, I should make the disclaimer that I'm not a lawyer, of course. <laughs> 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 but, you know, I, I was ta I've talked to a few people and, I, and um, um, obviously it does not, I, my understanding is anyway, and I, if there are lawyers listening to this, they can come, they can hopefully email us, but it doesn't mean that it, it applies to public accommodations right now, that, 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 that Supreme Court case. And also that there seems to be, from what I've read, in terms of the, um, the way the court was, the way the court wrote this, that they seem to be saying that they're going to give some consider, consideration to quote, and I say quote, um, religious religious freedom. Mm -hmm. uh, makes me wonder how this whole law, um, the law in Mississippi that you're talking about, that says that you can um, you can refuse service to somebody in a business if you have religious objections to same sex marriage. Mm -hmm. And so I, I wonder how that's going to affect all this. And, how, and since there's no non-discrimination clause in Mississippi for employment or housing, what happens if somebody is fired and they can prove that? How's, mm -hmm. that, how's the Supreme Court case going to um, go versus this religious, quote, religious freedom? Right. Well, supposedly the Supreme Court is supposed to be the, you know, federal is supposed to be Trump state, I suppose, but who knows in today's environment? Right. I, I, I didn't know. I I yeah, people are still afraid about those kind of things. I mean, when, when, isn't it interesting that, that when we're talking about anti-queer bias, we're almost always dancing around the, the influence of religious culture, um, right. which, which is, seems to be so central. And I like that, 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 that this was a part of your book, too, that many of these couples had religious or spiritual lives. And then mm -hmm. also within the, the cultures that they were, um, that they were all part in the communities they were all part of, that in some cases, churches were the central community gathering place. That's right. That's right. And in order to be part of the community, you would be part of a congregation. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Were you, were you surprised to find that, that there was so much spiritual life going on in, uh, in and among these couples? No, because I, I knew that from friends here and from people I've known. Um, and I'd also done some research previously with some colleagues on the spiritual identity of gays and lesbians. And you know, in addition to wanting to put this in here because it's what I'd heard from the couples, I, I wanted to also show people that it's a myth to say that gays and lesbians aren't spiritual um, because there's this assumption that they must be agnostic or they must be atheist or they must be, you know, um, mm -hmm. and that's okay if anybody is. But at the same time, you can't make assumptions about everybody. And um, I think that for um, the Christian right has really pushed this idea that if somebody's 
gay or lesbian, then they turn their back on God or they turn their back on, you know, everything. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's, it's one thing to turn your back on religion, but it's not fair to say someone's also turning their back on their spirituality. Right. Um, and so that, I just thought it was so important to say that. Um, and I don't think that a lot of people who aren't queer understand the, um, as you said earlier, the resilience, the strength it takes for somebody to leave a religion that they've grown up in their whole lives and find something else that fits them. To go through this whole journey to find something that's going to give them that same um, same connection and same um, meaning mm-hmm. that they had growing up. And so I, I just, I find it really, um, you know, moving and just admirable, really. I admire it, too. I mean, when you look at the values, belief surveys among um, among queer folk nationally, um, it splits close to 50-50, sometimes 60-40, where if you walked into any quote-unquote queer space um, and you flipped a coin, you, you know, and guessed at random, you, uh, among, you'd be more likely to find a believer in something than mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, where it's just, general human nature seems to be, we, we grow up with certain traditions um, and we find certain amounts of value in them. And then, you know, if, through the coming out process, sometimes there's a rejection full on, sometimes there's a rejection and I, tr- I try to find something else. And That's sometimes right. Right. Well, um, in, the ca- in some cases there's a rejection and then as later on in adulthood, you find your way back to your childhood faith. That's right. And, you know, so many of the people I've talked to, couples I've interviewed and from another study and in my own experience even, <laughs> is that this whole, this whole process of being forced to question your religion for a lot of people means that when they, after they go through this process, they have such a deeper meaning about um, whether it's spirituality or just what life means to them. Right. They've had to go through this process and so many people don't. They just, they don't question what they've been taught all their lives and that's all they know. So to right. way, it's a, it's a, it's a um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a different perspective, I guess. I think it's beautiful. And then Mississippi is yeah. such a religious state too. So you're of course, in the country. Yeah. Ideals are going to be part of the character. That's right. That's right. Yeah. In the mix. Um, all right. The conclusion of your book, right, is almost kind of like a Bruce Springsteen song. I was thinking, right? Like where, you know, being an outsider <laughs> and debating staying or going from the place. Oh, that's funny. Right? Like so many of the bosses, younger yeah. songs are about going. Right, born to run, etc. Like that's, I never thought of that. That's hilarious. So many of his later songs, though, are about staying and the value mm-hmm. of staying, mm-hmm. um, fighting the good fight, being true to yourself by staying. Yeah, um, yeah. So I was wondering, why do you, so many of the people you interviewed see a value um, in staying? For the again, I think this. I think the fact that I was interviewing. Couples who've been together at least five years meant that I had more couples who were um, older. It was a wide range of couples. But for the couples, you know, I guess I'd say 50s and above, maybe late 40s and above, they talked about just really wanting to make a difference for future generations. This is pride pride in in fighting and making a difference. And one of the couples um, in the book, and I can't remember the names right now, but said something that just stuck with me. It stuck with me since they said it. And they said, you know, people think that, um, people think that if you're a couple in the South, that you're not making a difference at all. But he said, I think we're just as much activists, if not more, 
than the activists in the big cities because here we are in this, and in their case, they're out. Here we are in our community. People know that we're a couple and every day we're showing them that we're, you know, we're people too and that we're not these crazy stereotypes that they, they think are true. Mm. And they really, um, it was moving and I just thought it was, it gave me some insight I hadn't thought about before. Mm. And the other part to it is not only this idea that we're going to fight and we're going to make change, it's, it's, it's a stubbornness. It's saying, you know, I've worked here. I've bought this house. I remember a lesbian couple saying this. I've, you know, I've worked, put my, put all this work into owning this land and I'm just not going to leave it. You know, mm. it, it's, um, so it's a combination of those things, but yet even with the couples who were making these strong statements, there was always conflict. There's always, yeah, but I do wonder sometimes what would it be like to live in a place where um, I didn't, I wasn't so concerned about someone else being uncomfortable if I said the wrong thing, mm-hmm. you know, or where I can walk down the street and hold my wife's hand, you know, th- those kind of things. I, it's definitely what I experienced when I left New Orleans. Um, and I haven't experienced that moving to a town that's, it's, it's much different than a really, a town of like 4,000 people. Mm-hmm. So, I say this in the book that I think that, and I make it a sweeping generalization, but I think that for so many of us queer Mississippians, that conflict's always gonna be there. And I don't know how it can't be because you're living in a place where you know you have people that tolerate you and quote, and, so, and a lot of, here I have a lot of support, but accept you. But at the same time, you know that the state voted 84% of this population back when was it, 2014, mm-hmm. voted to um, amend the state constitution to outlaw gay marriage. And that, that, you know, that a majority of the state continues to elect politicians who are so anti-gay. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a, there's a constant push and pull and back and forth um, in what you experience. And it's, I mean, and then how do you confront it if the, if the anti-queer sentiment is based in religion and in religious yeah, interpretation? Because yeah. I'm sure you face this too. I mean, I'm, I'm a gay Roman Catholic. It's not oh, like okay, yeah, right? yeah, and yeah. quoting the Bible or giving them the context for the creation helps soften their attitudes. Right, um, right. Yeah. Or be like, you know, the original word homosexual wasn't in the Bible. No, it was not. That's right. Yeah, that's year, like 1946 doesn't help them amend their attitudes. Right. Um, it almost, you're almost shirked off in that case. Um, but do you, you think the regular community contact um, does something to soften that sort of obstinate stance where you have a very, uh, it, it can be a hateful ideology. Um, where uh, yeah. in terms of opposing people who are different, and you utilize the term a lot, um, heterosexist, the presumption yeah. of the yeah. superiority of heterosexuality. Right. right. Do you well, feel yeah. that the simple contact, the visibility is, is making some, in the way that your, your couples do, is making some sort of a difference? I think so. I think, I think it does. Just even whether or not people, well, you know, there's been research, I guess, right, over time across the country that when somebody knows somebody who is gay or lesbian, they're more likely to, um, their attitudes are likely to, are likely, more likely to, to, to change. Sure. What's it's so interesting about the religious piece here is that, and it ties right into that tolerance and acceptance again, is that 
you have these people that go to these churches that are so anti-gay, but then they have neighbors who are gay and lesbian and they're very kind to them. They're neighborly to them. You know, they might, they talk to them. They, you know, they may share things with them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Behind their backs, they're going to these churches that are so anti-gay and they may even be saying things that, that are anti-gay. Mm -hmm. It's such a weird, it's such a weird dynamic. Right. Yeah. And church gossip behind the back does not just apply to queer culture, like to like the behind the back. Oh yeah, yeah. Let's be real. Okay, so from your perspective too, um, uh, are things getting harder or easier uh, for the queer couples you spoke to, and how? Wow, that's a good question. So I always wanted to just hug some of these people and be like, I hope it. I hope it gets easier for you. I, I think the stances they take are admirable. I like that they're, they're proud of where they're from and don't want to move. Um, and I hope it does, but I was wondering if you thought they are too, or, you know, cause you've interviewed them for a while, you must've formed an impression. Several, several, of the, several of the couples talked about, I remember several female couples in particular talking about how what was making it easier for them is that they were reaching retirement age. They didn't have to worry about losing their jobs. And so they, could, they had less to lose by being out there. Um, mm -hmm. A couple talked about they were looking forward to retirement age because then they would go get married because they didn't have to worry about it if somebody found out. Um, so that, you know, that's a good question. I, I don't know if I can make a generalization about that. I think it just, it so depends on the couple. Um, so it's, I, it's body, it depends on, it's situational. It is. I think that um, I can tell you that in the town, this college town I live in, and in you know other areas, I think there's been a lot of progress. The fact that we've had a pride parade here before COVID, anyway, yeah, was such a moving thing to happen. And I think that there are strong pockets of support, even in a state like Mississippi, that gets drowned out oftentimes because of the oftentimes negative anti-gay voices tend to be louder. Mm -hmm. I think that there's still incredible support. Um, I did when I did I did a talk last week. I was talking. I told, told a story about. When I was coming out here at 19, uh, I don't that might be, it was I was 18 or 19, but to make a long story short, my mom goes to this Democratic convention for Bill Clinton, and she's one of the delegates, and she's walking out, and Andy Rooney from one of those shows is um, interviewing people about what they think of Don't Ask, Don't Tell and Bill Clinton, the mm -hmm. military, and she, she happens to get interviewed, and he says, what do you think about this? And she goes, well, of course, I support it because I have a gay son, and mm -hmm. so what surprised her was she had she had some people that kind of, if she asked them if they'd seen it, they kind of changed the subject. But she had also had these people that came up to her quietly saying, I have a gay son, I have a lesbian daughter, I have so-and-so that's gay. But they'd never talked about it because they, were, they, they didn't know if they could. It was that mm -hmm. whole even feeling funny about talking about it, parents. Mm -hmm. And so it, it shows even, it just shows you how that, and this is a long time ago, but it still shows that example of how there's support out there but people just don't talk about it a lot of times. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. And I'm yeah. glad your mom said that. Oh, back yeah. She's people, awesome. Back when people thought don't ask, don't tell was going to be a positive thing. Like an improvement. I know, I know. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. that's right. Um, <laughs> was there something um, else, I always ask this as a journalist, that you wish I had asked, but I didn't get to um, in our conversation? No, I can't think of, I mean, I think you've been very thorough. I can't think of anything. I'll think about it probably when we, when we, um, oh, okay. you know, that's what's going to happen. We'll continue it. You got it. You come down to New Orleans. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. yeah. 
I drink Sazerac. So okay. we, we, can, we can hang out and gab some more. And I'd love to hear about your time in town here. But John, thank you so much for writing Coming Out of the Magnolia Closet. Thank you for doing this important work and thank you for bringing these voices to the fore. Um, there's not enough books like this. And thank you, Miss University of Mississippi Press, for publishing a book like this. There's not enough books like this. So thank you so much and congratulations. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this. You've been great. Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's literary lawn party.